Somebody suggested that I could speak this evening about attachments. And presumably they were suggesting that because the suffering over being attached is not a purely academic subject for discussion. And this, of course, fits very well with the Dhamma Chakrabhavatana Sutta we've just been reciting, where the what the Buddha is pointing to in the Four Noble Truths, again, it's not just a philosophical argument, but he's, he's saying that if you're suffering, it's because you're doing this, and if you stop doing this, then you're not suffering anymore. And so then what the, the this that we're doing, that he's pointing to, is being lost in desire, being attached, really. Out of deluded desire, uh, we get attached to things and then we create problems out of life. Remembering, of course, it's not desire itself that's a problem, it's craving. The, the Buddha didn't say desire is a problem, he said craving is a problem, tanha. That craving, it's a kind of, the, it translates sometimes as thirst, that aching for something always wanting more and never satisfied. And there's a cause for that. There's a root to that. There's something we're doing. It's not something that's happening to us. Now, until we hear these teachings or until we exercise some uh, inner inquiry, we could well think that somehow the suffering's happening to us. You know, like uh, talking to somebody earlier today about being bored. And when you're feeling bored... It's very easy, if you're not mindful, <laughs> it's very easy to think that somebody's making you bored. You say, oh, you're so boring. But nobody else is boring. Now, I could talk, sit here and talk for hours about something that you're not very interested in, and you could say, oh, I just mean, it was very boring tonight. I wasn't boring. Uh, I don't make you feel bored. Relaxed, by the way, I'm not going to talk for hours I'm um, hopefully talk only for a few minutes, and you'll find it interesting. But that's just to illustrate. That's what we do tend to do: is say, "Oh, that's very boring." We project out there responsibility for something that we're in fact doing ourselves. What is it that we're doing? Well, that's the question. That's what the Buddha wants us to ask: What is it you're doing that makes you suffer? Well, in the case of boredom, what we're doing is holding to an idea of something that we consider is more interesting than what's happening right now. And we have a subtle but very dulling form of resentment to what's happening right now. That's the result. Boredom is a, actually a subtle form of resentment. If you get in touch with that, it's very helpful because when you say you're feeling bored, and we, then you say, well, actually, I'm feeling angry. That's much more helpful because then you've got energy. You know, if you get lost in boredom, it's very unfortunate. It's, it's like you feel like you've lost all your energy and you're flat and you're lifeless. And but if we're honest about it 
and say, well, the truth is I'm feeling irritated that what I think is more interesting than this is not happening right now. And that's helpful because then we're, then we're one with the reality of our anger, of our resentment, with our energy, with our passion. And so within the way forward becomes clear. You say, well, you can resist this and pretend that you're not angry or you can stop being angry. Um, so we've got the choice. And likewise with attachments, all attachments, that when we're suffering, uh, the Buddha said, There's, it's not something's happening to you, it's something that you're doing. Always. That's the principle. Now, again, as always with the Buddha's teaching, he didn't say, this is the principle, go around beating up the people up with it. That's, uh, that's, that's not suitable. But that we study the principle and then we accord with the conditions of life. And I think it's very helpful to have these two perspectives. If we don't have any principles, then the conditions of life are just so chaotic that you can really get spun out very easily. It's just a mess, basically. It is a mess. Conditions are a mess. You know, we can call it chaos, or you could call it uncertain or impermanent. But a lot of the time, it's, it's experienced as a mess. It's untidy. Relationships are untidy. That people are not the way we want them to be. Politics is untidy. The weather is untidy. The conditions of the world are chaotic. And to accord with the conditions, um, all true religious teachings, and particularly Buddhism, said it's important that we have educated ourselves in Dhamma principles, in true principles. We get the basic principles down. We establish those principles as guidelines, as ideals in our minds. We don't fully know them. If we fully knew those principles, fully knew them, fully embodied them, end of story. uh, We're like the, we're enlightened then. There's no problems, no issue anymore. But in the beginning, what we do is we educate ourselves with the ideal, the idea of the principles, and we use that as a guideline that helps steward us, direct us through the life. And the way we direct ourselves through life is by according with conditions. And and that's why the, the, uh, the, the great Chinese master, Master Shunhua, used to say, accord with conditions without compromising principles. You've heard me quote this many times before, I expect. It's a, it's a very helpful little thing to have written up on your shrine or in your kitchen, on your pin-up board or on your fridge or somewhere. Accord with conditions without compromising principles. It's a really helpful little formula when you're in a fix. What do I do? Accord with conditions without compromising principles. Or if you're suffering, you know, why am I suffering? Well, it's either not according with conditions properly or it's because they don't... I'm not properly established in true principles. So it's important that we study, for instance, the Four Noble Truths, hear what the basic religious teachings are. This is the cause of suffering. It's not, you know, the politicians. It's not the weather. It's not somebody's behaviour towards us because, you know, the way somebody pours the tea and then they dribble it onto the tablecloth and, and you start getting upset. Well... You know, you're not upset because somebody dribbled on the tablecloth. We're upset because we don't like them dribbling the teapot on the tablecloth. Well, it's perfectly understandable that we don't like somebody dribbling tea onto the tablecloth. Perfectly understandable. Or if they burn the porridge in the morning. 
if uh, there's some near a co-widow over here who's actually a well, he's actually a master pizza maker, but that's from a previous incarnation. Right now, he's a master gruel maker. He's our master gruel maker every morning, and he gets up at 4.30, is it? 4.20. 4.20. So he gets up at 4.20 every morning to prepare the gruel for everybody in the monastery, all the monks, the novices, the anagarikas, and the lay visitors. And we, it's, it's sometimes called power porridge because it's it's made out of... Uh, various organic whole grains and soaked overnight and, and very slowly cooked and, and uh, wholesome sea salt and, and various other little healthy, wholesome ingredients going in there to making something that's very, very nourishing and um, a good way to start the day. But if he's heedless and um, he goes upstairs and thinks, well, I'll just lie down for a few minutes and then he burns it and then in the morning everybody's got burnt gruel well, there's no question about it. You don't like it. You know, burnt gruel is not good. doesn't feel good. But do we have to suffer over it or not? So here's the condition. Yeah. But if we've got true principles, we realize that the only reason we're going to suffer over this disagreeable condition, there's no question about it, burnt gruel is disagreeable. Yeah. It's like body odor. You know, If somebody doesn't wash their clothes, and they, they come and they sit in your room and they the dirty socks or, or whatever, it's disagreeable. This person's presence is disagreeable. There's no question the condition is disagreeable. But how do we accord with the condition? Well, we accord with the condition by understanding true principles. And the true principle is that if we're suffering, it's because of something we're doing. That's the basic message. And it's really important to have that if we want to live in this world with any sort of peace. Otherwise, we can spend our whole life going around trying to change all the conditions, which can be actually well and good sometimes to try and change the conditions. You know, certain conditions we should try and change. But if we're not grounded in true principles, then when we can't succeed in changing conditions, we fall apart. And there are some conditions that we really should try very, very hard to change. They're unjust, inappropriate, unnecessary. Yeah, and we should try all we can to change them. However, we're not uh, in charge of the world. We can't make the world be the way we want it to be. So sometimes we won't succeed in our good efforts. If we're grounded in true principles, then we'll understand. Because, why? Because we weren't grasping at our aspiration, our wholesome aspirations. So even... Even the, uh, the true principles, if we are not careful, we can use those to make our lives suffering. Again, I was talking earlier today to somebody in the community about, I forget what it was now, something that was happening, and, um, and it wasn't perfect. And I, I commented, I said, well, that's not absolutely perfect, is it? That's, and whoever it was said, well, yes, but it, you know, life is not ideal. I said, oh, great, that's right, yeah, that's it. Life is not ideal, life is life. Life is like this. Life is not ideal. But we need ideals. Ideals are the same as principles, really. If we grasp at ideals, then we are abusing the ideals. Yeah. Like the ideal that, that we shouldn't be attached. Here I am, I'm the abbot of the monastery. I've been a monk for so 35 years. 
36 years, I'm told, something like that. And, um, and the monks are just turning me out of my kuti right now. And I'm being relocated into the room that's usually used for visiting Ajahns because they are very kindly uh, repainting my kuti as a, uh, as a birthday present to me. And I appreciate that very much. But guess what? <laughs> I'm attached to my space. And so uh, being relocated, I, I can feel it. I say, oh, right, yeah. I won't have that for the next period of time. I won't have that. And, so, and if I'm attached to the ideal that I shouldn't be attached, well, I can get very disheartened about that. And I really shouldn't be attached, for goodness sake. I mean, people have been feeding me for 36 years, giving me robes, giving me shelter, giving me medicine, for 36 years, and here I am still attached to my own kuti. Hopeless case. Ajimanendo, write him off. Yeah. And, well, I could, you know, even if you're nice enough to not write me off, I could write myself off because I'm attached to the ideal of how I should be. And that was the case, I must admit, <clears throat> in the early years as a monk. I was very attached to the ideals of how I should be and how the ajahn of the monastery should be and and I remember going to a katina one year. This was early, early on, uh, probably um, the mid-70s. And uh, the monastery is Wat Tamsang Pet, the temple of the Cave of Diamond Light, and uh, one of Ajahn Chah's favorite monasteries. And all of them, we all went up there for the katina. And, and you're in the Dhamma Hall, huge, great big hall, four times the size of this one, full of people and all the monks and novices and nanagarikas and nuns are all lined up in the front there, all sitting very impeccable, upright and very impressive. Hundreds, if not thousands, of lay people. And uh, Dhamma talks going on. But then as the evening went by, people started to drift off because the thing would happen that on these occasions everybody stays up all night until the following dawn and people, the senior monks, give Dhamma talks all night. And, uh, and so people come and go. You know, they go outside and walk meditation for a while. Or it's also, of course, it's a huge big rock. It's a mountain, basically. There's temples on top of a mountain, or a big hill. And there's this huge big rock covering. And because it's very sunny, it's very hot, and at the middle of the night you can be out there lying on these nice hot stones and the Dhamma talks are being blasted through loudspeakers out there, so you can be out there. Well, I found that there's also a side building that you could go into. And I went in there for a while, and I, I looked across the other side, and there's all these senior monks that a minute ago, they were all sitting up there upright, and they were all lying down, chatting. They weren't exactly smoking and chewing betel nut, but they were very relaxed. I was horrified. I was shocked. So these senior monks, why are they sitting up there, you know, straight, and being impressive all night, for me, so that I'm not disappointed with them? Or I just got an email today from... A, uh, a young aspirant who's looking to go forth in a, a few months' time and he's uh, got very high ideals about what the bhikkhu life is about, a very intelligent, well-trained lawyer, friend, and right now he's just off in, uh, well, he's in Burma right now, I think. He was just been in Thailand and he wrote me an email about, um, he arrived in Bangkok, he was jet-lagged, but he made himself get up very early in the morning to give alms food to the monks on alms round and he was a little bit shocked by the, uh, the demeanour of some of the monks that he met in Bangkok. And I, I dread to think what he saw, but uh, 
I wrote back to him and I said, well, I quoted the, uh, one of the abbots of the teaching monasteries that I lived in in Bangkok, and he said that even Buddhist institutions are subject to the law of impermanence, like everything else. Whereas if we're attached to the ideal about how monasteries should be, about how monks should be, the ideal is right. You know, monks shouldn't behave the way some of them do in Bangkok, or outside of Bangkok for that matter. Monasteries shouldn't be dumping grounds where people are selling all sorts of things and having parties and, and carrying on. That's right, it shouldn't be that way. But it's an institution and it's been there for as long as uh, Christianity has been in this country and, uh, or maybe not that long, but it's been there for a very long time. As we know from Christianity in our own country, it wasn't that long ago that monasteries were festival grounds and there was all sorts of things going on there that shouldn't be happening. So the image is uh, an indication of how we can create problems out of ideals, even though our ideals might be right. As the abbot of this monastery, as a monk of 35, 36 years, I shouldn't be attached. But I'm still unenlightened, and, and so I am still attaching to things. But the practice is how to accord with the conditions of, right, okay, I get relocated from my room, I start suffering a little bit, that's the condition. We accord with it. You know, we feel it, we receive it. The true principle is there, that is, that all suffering is caused by attachment. So we don't blame somebody else. I don't start blaming Tanaria. Why can't you get the job finished sooner? You know, really, I'm just attached to my space. You know. It's not a Tanario's fault. You know. Or blaming myself, you know, I'm, I should be better than I am. You know. Rather, we get interested in the reality. So why am I suffering right now? It's not a gross suffering. I mean, I'm sure I'll sleep all right tonight. Yeah, it's not a, a terrible suffering. A few years ago, it would have been a lot worse. Now, that's a good sign, isn't it? Yeah. And that is actually, I think, a good barometer. Um, you know, and life's disappointments. Things happen. Loss. Anticipation. If we look back five years, you know, say we experienced some loss, and uh, we look back five or ten years and say, well, how was I handling the situation then? And then we can see, so I yeah, actually, I'm able to, more able to accord with conditions now than I was then. Or if we're not, you know, if we're not more able, well, then here's the formula, say, accord with the conditions without compromising principles. What is it? Where is it? And this is where agility is so important. Agility is a seriously important aspect of cultivating right mindfulness. Yeah. Right mindfulness is not the same as concentration. It is a, a mistake that I made for a very long time, and I know a lot of people make. They concentrate on the meditation object. They've heard the Buddha taught mindfulness of breathing, but what are they doing? They're concentrating. That's focusing, holding on to the meditation object. That's not mindfulness. Yeah. Holding on to the meditation object is not necessarily mindfulness. Mindfulness is the watchfulness. Yeah. Remember the, the image the Buddha gave of the gatekeeper standing at the gate watching who comes and who goes, studying them. So, is they, are they friendly or are they not friendly? Are they hostile? Or are they, uh, 
watchfulness is the mindfulness practice. And so if we, uh, we might have all the right principles, but if we're not holding them mindfully, then even the right principles uh, can be a cause to suffering. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Am I out of